A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing him to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get to him, get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. You may have a seat. Oh, good morning, Rise. Hey, how are we doing this morning? Oh, I, how, how good is this story? These encounters with Jesus. This one in particular, I think it is a word for us today because we look at these three different you know, groups of characters here and what we find is um, we find these friends that give us a glimpse of what it looks like to be the church and how the church is to play a role in people encountering Jesus. We see the religious leaders or the teachers of the law and how we are to face critics and criticisms and we see the character of the paralyzed man and we find ourselves in this story and how Jesus knows our deeper need. So we're going to look at these groups of characters in this story kind of one by one and what we pull away from this. So first, the four friends. It says, some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, then lowered the mat the man was laying on. What do we learn about the church through these friends? We learn that we are hope dealers. That is our role. That that when people are looking for their hope supply, they know where to come. You know what I'm saying? Some of you guys with a testimony know what I'm saying, all right? We are where people go who are looking for hope because we have access, we have an experience, we have had an encounter with Jesus. And what I need you to understand is our goal is to not get people to church. Our goal as the church is to get people to Jesus, amen? That, that is the call because only Jesus, if people can encounter Jesus, they will discover the answer to their deepest needs, wounds, and desires. So the church's mission, every church has the same mission. You know what it is? To make disciples, But if that's our mission, and what we pull from this is actually learning from these friends is the church's posture. You know, the church's posture needs to be that we will do anything so that anyone can encounter the risen one. That's our posture. We will do anything so that anyone 
can encounter the risen one. Now, whenever I say things like this, somebody always comes up and says, yeah, but like, what about sin? And my thought in that moment is always, you know, Mrs. Jaffke, my kindergarten teacher, I just, she was wrong. There are dumb questions, okay? <laughs> there just are, right? Sin does not bring people to Jesus. Sin is the opposite. Sin puts reliance on anything other than Christ, finds sufficiency or identity in anything other than Christ. It's turning to other than Christ. But we will do anything that points people to Jesus so that anyone can have an encounter with the risen one. That is why we exist as a church. And so we see this story, and we see this interaction, and they start digging away. So they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it. Now, in a place like Capernaum, they, every uh, house, they had a rooftop that was almost like a, like a patio where there were stairs to it and people could climb and sit and stand and be out on the patio it was ex- kind of expanding their, their house or their place for living. And the roofs, they were the, kind of this thatched, inner, inner hatched area of, of sticks and hay and mud and clay. And so there's this massive crowd Gathered, and these friends need to get their paralyzed friend to Jesus. And so they go up on the roof and they literally start digging away at the roof. Okay, it's not something that they didn't need saws and hammers. They're, they're digging away at this dried mud and clay. Now, just picture this scene. All these people are gathered, Jesus is teaching, and then all of a sudden somebody's on the roof. And there's dust everywhere and sticks falling down. And you know Jesus, right? You know how Jesus is in this moment. Because he's sovereign. He's God. He knows all. And so he's in that moment and he's just kind of like smirking. As all the, everybody's like, what is happening? He knows what's happening. He knows not only what is happening, but he knows what's about to happen. He knows the posture of the Pharisees. He knows the faith of these friends. And he knows the plight of this paralyzed man. And he knows that he is, just, he is about to give a glimpse of his deity. See, this is an incredible moment. These friends, they were willing to do whatever it took to get their paralyzed brother to Christ. But why couldn't they get to Jesus? Why did they even have to dig in the roof in the first place? It's because of the crowd, right? And who's among the crowd? It's the religious people. The religious people stood in the way. See, this is the difference between a posture of being a bunch of religious people versus being hope dealers. Religious people, they guard the gate, don't they? But hope dealers, they see it as their role to get people to Jesus. Religious people take up all the space so there is no more room. But hope dealers do anything and everything to make space for the outsiders. That's a posture that we need to have as a church. Religious people, they critique methods and argue over proper practices, but hope dealers could care less about methods but would die for the mission. To reach the lost, to make disciples, religious people want the messy people out so their church can stay neat and tidy and clean. But hope dealers let the church get messy so the messy people can find hope. That is the call of the church. And look, it's gonna get messy you better believe it's gonna get messy. We start cutting holes in roofs, right? Especially in Oregon, are you kidding me? It's gonna be messy. But we need to be a people that have a posture that says we will do anything and everything short of sin so that people can encounter the risen Jesus Christ. That is the call of the church. And so we will adapt, we will innovate, we will try new things, 
because we need to be in the roof opening business. We need to be a church that cuts open. We need to keep making holes in roofs. And so this is what we do as a church. Why did we open a a seven-day-a-week coffee shop in the front corner of our building? You know what that is? That's a hole in the roof that people could encounter the living God. I, I, I will never forget an early Sunday morning when a gal early on came into work there and she showed up and she, she was beat and bruised and she didn't know what to do and she was emotional and, and Will, he was like, you need to go into church right now. Forget your shift, we're going into church and they came in and they found brothers and sisters to pray with her, to walk with her through this road. It was his first time ever coming to church was that Sunday. And as we shared about how God wants to meet us and encounter us and heal us, we asked people, hey, would you stand up if you need an encounter with God today? And you know what? She stood up in the back and people came around her and prayed over her. Why? Because there was a hole in the roof. You feel me? Why do we go to downtown Gresham and spend thousands of dollars putting on a free kids camp every summer when it would be so much cheaper and easier just to do it in this building? Like, we already made this building. Like, just come in here. It's fine. You know why we go to downtown Gresham and put that camp on? Because we're cutting a hole in the roof. We're trying to go make people, make an access, a pathway for people to come to Jesus. Why do dozens of family each, families each week open up their homes for Citigroup? They're cutting holes in their roofs, saying, no, we will do anything and everything so that people can have an encounter with Jesus Everything we do, from the way we design our buildings, to the way we plan series, to the way we create spaces, the way we post on social, cultivate environments of light and sound, care about meeting people's real needs. We are doing everything as we do as a church because we are not a museum for saints. We are a hospital for the sick. And you know what the sick need? They need a hole in the roof. They need a church that says, It doesn't matter. It's not about keeping things neat and tidy. It's not about, oh, can we take up all the space? I I had somebody just talk to me this morning, like, hey, just so you know, we don't have parking anymore, right? Okay, yeah, that's a problem. So what that's gonna mean in the future is either we stop reaching people or the people of Jesus start parking further and further away, okay? All right, and I didn't even plan on saying this, but let's cut some holes in some roofs, you guys. Okay, let's constantly not say, hey, no, this is space for the religious people. This is a parking spot for the religious person. Oh, this is a clean, neat tight. No, we are a church that postures ourselves for the outsiders and says they need an encounter with Jesus. And so we will do anything so that anyone can have an encounter with the risen one. Now, because here's what's so incredible. It is their faith that moved Jesus to provide for his healing. Look at the verse again. It says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. He's not talking about this man's faith. He's talking about their faith, okay? Now, I wanna be careful here because there's this moment and they're digging and they're cutting through the roof and the mud and the sticks and they are putting their faith on display as they struggled with these four ropes to lower their friend down. They are putting their faith on display. And let me tell you, they never had any intention of raising him back up. You ever try to lower someone down, right? They're lowering him down. They're like, Lord, we have full confidence that our brother's gonna get up and walk out because we are not pulling him back up, right? We ain't got no pulley system in this room. You know what that was? That was an act of faith. And when Jesus saw all of this, all of their faith on display, he looked at him and said, son, your sins are forgiven. 
See, here's what I need you to understand is our faith can move the heart of God to impact a person's eternal destiny. This is what we're gaining from this passage. I am not saying that your faith can save someone you love. That's not how it works. But what scripture reveals to us is that your faith can move the heart of God who is the one who can save. And so if our acts of faith of falling to our knees in prayer, of inviting, of, of interceding, of, out, of reaching outward, if our displays of confidence and faith in God can move his heart for our city, our city will never be the same. Because it is God who changes hearts. It is God who saves souls. It is God who transforms lives. Uh, think of it this way, okay? Just do me a favor, participate with me a little bit. Uh, raise your hand if you grew up going to church on some kind of consistent basis, Okay? All right, so looking around the room, that's about half to, you know, two-thirds of the room grew up. Now, here's what I want you to know. The reason, and I want to acknowledge that some of us in this room have experienced hope and healing, not because of your faith, but because of the faith of ones who've gone before you. I don't know if those of you who grew up in church, you know, you'd have testimony night, right? And you'd always be like, I'm so sad. I, don't have, I have a boring testimony. I grew up in church, Right? Praise God for that boring testimony. That boring testimony is actually a testimony of the ones of faith who've gone before you. My parents, my parents didn't grow up in Christian homes. My, my mom never knew her dad. Her mom was not a woman of faith. She was adopted by another man that her mom married later. She has two siblings. I have zero relationship with them. They don't know the Lord. Uh, my brother, my, my dad grew up with seven brothers and sisters. I couldn't even name them all. I, we don't have a relationship with them. His, his dad was an abusive, angry man. I never had a relationship with my grandfather. My parents got married. They had my brother. They moved from El Paso, Texas, to the Bay Area, California. My dad was starting a business, and my mom got pregnant with me, and my mom was desperately lonely. And she had a neighbor an amazing Latina woman would come over and just befriend her. And she found out that my mom, uh, she was asking about my, the baby shower for me, and my mom was like, I don't have any friends. And so this woman invited all of her friends and her sisters over to throw a baby shower for my mom. My mom said only a couple of them spoke English, okay? So my baby shower was more like a quinceanera. It was amazing. <laughs> but then these women started inviting my mom to church and to their potlucks. And my mom, out of her desperate loneliness, started going. And then she started going, so my dad started going with her. They, they got plugged in so deeply into the local church that I grew up without a testimony. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, all I remember is church. From my early youngest days, every Sunday, we were going to church. Why? Because a group of women had the faith to cut a hole in the roof so that my mom could be invited in to encounter Jesus. I am here today not because of my acts of faith. I'm here today because of their acts of faith. That is the power of the church cutting holes in roofs, that we have a God who can be moved by our faith for another person's eternal destiny. Now, some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. 
Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? And here's the thing. As we start to follow Jesus, uh, we need to be very weary of the voice of the critic because it's coming. And what we, we need to have a posture that says Christ is greater than the critic. And he is the voice that we will listen to. He is the voice that we will that will guide us. See, as you read through these encounters, it's, this is gonna be status quo. There's always gonna be the critics there. There's a crowd looking for healing and then there's a group of critics looking for something to criticize. This is a pattern and some things never change. And so whether you're new to church or you've been a part of the family of Jesus for a long time, buckle up because you're gonna continue to get criticized. And here's what's fascinating to me. Um, Jesus was criticized. He was mocked and he's doubted, so will you. And he tells us that we will be criticized. He says, you will be hated by everyone because of me. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Now, what does he mean by everyone? There, there's these categories who are gonna criticize you. You know who's gonna, who's gonna criticize you? Everyone. <laughs> that means the world will criticize the followers of Jesus and the religious are gonna criticize the followers of Jesus alike. It's gonna, you, you, you don't need to step back and be like, okay, now where's this criticism coming from, okay? Should I listen to this? Oh, oh, you're a righteous person. I should listen to your criticism of how we're cutting holes in the roof of our church, right? No, 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 no. You listen to the voice of Jesus. You listen to the good shepherd. You listen to his guidance. Because, because otherwise, these critics, they're gonna shape you. They're gonna tear you down. They're gonna pull you away from your calling. They're gonna shape our church and they have no voice in it. You know who gets to shape our church? The Jesus, his word, the teaching of the apostles, the saints. That's who gets to shape this church. And so we need to say the voice of Christ is greater than the voice of the critics. I remember when I first started coming to faith and I was, I was a teenager and I was in middle school and uh, there was a rite of passage in my youth group, when you, uh, when you became a follower of Jesus, it was kind of a tradition. There was two things you needed to go get, and so my mom took me to the Christian bookstore, and uh, I got my Bible tabs. Yep. Anybody remember Bible tabs? They're like coming back. Like you could, now everybody's like, I just know, you know, where Nehemiah is. I'm like, no, you don't. Don't. All right. Just, you need a tab for that, right? You know, I was just searching my phone, whatever, cheater. Okay, but Bible tabs, you know, you'd spend like seven hours like putting them on, you know, and you know, so you knew all the different books of the Bible. Some of you guys are like, I don't know what he's talking about. May the Lord's blessing be upon you, okay? <laughs> all right. And the other thing that I got that in my uh, middle school youth group was, was a rite of passage, was I got a purity ring, okay? Yeah, oh, some of you guys are feeling this, uh, you know, more than the hope dealers thing, okay? Yeah. Uh, what, is, what does that mean, Carl? Okay, yeah. I had my purity ring, okay? And this was a statement that I'm saving my purity for my future bride. And I remember going to school that next day and I was so excited. I was like, man, I got, this is awesome. I got my Bible tabs, like, you know, I got my purity ring. And I got about to about second period science with Mr. Copsonis. And uh, the kids started asking me about my ring. And I was so proud to share, like, what it was. By the end of that class period, that ring was off my finger. Man, I was so um, embarrassed. Like, middle schoolers are brutal. And I put it in my pocket. And I'll never forget the feeling I had walking home, going to my dad's car as he was picking us up that day, 
reaching down to grab the ring to put it back on so my parents wouldn't see that I took it off and finding a giant hole in my pocket and realizing it had slipped out somewhere and it was gone. Man, I got home that day and I was embarrassed and ashamed. But I was not embarrassed and ashamed that they made fun of me. I was embarrassed and ashamed that I caved to the criticism. That I cared more about the criticisms than I did about my conviction of the voice and the teachings of Christ. But that was a powerful day for me because that moment, something sparked in me where I was like, no, I don't care what classmates, friends, the world has to say about me. I'm gonna follow Jesus. So much so that when I got to high school, like I was that crazy Bible kid, right? I'm literally walking around my public high school, flip-flops, North Carolina hat on backwards, and my Bible everywhere I went. And people laughed and made fun, like, but I didn't care anymore. You know why? Because when the crisis hit, I was the one they came to. When, when Courtney had a brutal moment at a party that summer, she came to me at the beginning of the school year and said, hey, can I start coming to church with you? I need something more for my life. When Lindsay found out she was pregnant in sophomore year, she would sit with me in study hall and just talk and have conversations about what it looks like to actually follow after God. When we lost Mike Valin in a horrible drowning accident over the weekend, kid who sat next to me in my science class, my class looked at me and said, in this public high school, will you stand up and lead us in a time of prayer together? Because I no longer cared about the voice of the critic, I cared about the voice of Christ. And this is what people are starving for. See, the critic and Christ, they're in stark contrast to one another. See, the critic is human opinion, but Christ's voice is divine wisdom, is it not? The critic is focused on flaws and shortcoming, but the voice of Christ is focused on grace and redeeming bring about redemption and hope to these stories. The critic wants to make you wrong. Christ wants to make you righteous. And the critic leads to anxiety and insecurity and the voice of Christ actually leads to inner peace and courage and boldness to walk out what he calls us to. One of my favorite all-time <laughs> poems, essays, is by a guy named Teddy Roosevelt, 26th president of the United States. A little over 100 years ago, he wrote an essay called The Man of the Arena. It's a little snippet from it. He says, it is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes up short again and again. The man who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement and who at worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. I don't know about you, but I'm riding with Teddy on this one, right? Man, like why are we, why are we succumbing to the voice of the critic? I don't care if it's another church. I don't care if it's a religious person. I don't care if it's the world. You listen to the voice of Christ. You bring people to Christ. You follow his guidance. 
his calling, his grace, his goodness. And because as you live for Jesus, as you turn to Jesus, you will face criticism of many kind from the world. They will belittle your beliefs, they will criticize your values, they will mock your faith. And as we seek to be a church that truly reaches our culture with the gospel, the kind of people who will do anything so that anyone can encounter the risen one, you guys, the religious are gonna criticize and critique as well. And so I want you to be prepared. I do not want it to derail your faith, but I also don't want it to make you bitter and jaded. I want, man, would you respond like Christ? Would you stop cowering to the critic and stand firm in the words of Jesus? As Paul so brilliantly told his young apprentice, Timothy, no one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather lives to please his commanding officer. Would we say, man, I'm, I'm gonna stop getting entangled in the politics of today. I'm gonna stop getting entangled in the criticism of today. I'm gonna stop getting entangled on, you know, on, on this, cult, this social media culture of just criticizing what's wrong with the church. No, no, I'm gonna stop getting entangled in civilian affairs and I'm gonna live to please my commanding officer because it is the voice of Jesus that matters. See, hope is found in the word of Christ, not the approval of critics. And that is what we need to build our hope upon. And so, notice here, as Jesus responds, he doesn't ignore their criticism. And he doesn't cower to it either. He actually challenges it. And he flips it on its head. And he doesn't do it through debate or argument. He does it through a display of both his humanity and his divinity. He says, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. So, he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. You know someone was like on the keyboard at that moment, like just started pl playing them out, you know? It was just like a moment, a scene. Like it's just, just dramatic. This amazed, that's, that's in the Greek, sorry, the keyboard is there. Uh, that's, this amazed everyone. And they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this, you guys. Only Jesus offers what we truly need. Only Jesus offers what we truly need. Just imagine what this was like for those friends. Like they, they carry their friend, their paralyzed friend, they carry him up the stairs. They start chiseling, pulling, digging away at this roof, making this scene. They lower him down and Jesus looks at him and he's like, you are forgiven. You know those friends were like not satisfied in that moment. Right? You know, one of them was like, Jesus, he can't walk, bro. Like, make him walk. And he's like, you're forgiven. Blessings upon thee. They're like, what? Seriously? Like, this is the moment that we had? See, they brought him to Jesus to heal his broken body, but Jesus saw this man and he knew he was in deeper need. And our deepest spiritual need is actually forgiveness for our sinful souls. Warren Wearsby puts it like this. He says, forgiveness is the greatest miracle that Jesus ever performs. It meets the greatest need, it costs the greatest price, and it brings the greatest blessing and the most lasting results. That man could have walked his way through and into eternal separation from God and it would not have made it a difference in eternity. What that man needed ultimately was the forgiveness of sins from a savior, Jesus. But this is why Jesus is so incredible. He doesn't just forgive him. 
he actually heals him. And in fact, he's going to heal him as evidence that he has the authority to forgive him. He says, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I'm going to heal him so you know that he is forgiven. It's evidence. It's a sign. My power over sickness and death is actually proof of my authority to forgive. See, this is what we have to understand. What makes Jesus so unique and so magnificent is that Jesus offers hope for both our sinful souls and our broken lives. He wants to bring healing to the soul and the body. He wants to bring hope to your spiritual state and the burdens you carry in your everyday life. He offers both forgiveness and healing, both spiritual restoration and physical resurrection, both freedom from the penalty of sin and freedom from the power of sin. How is this possible? Let me tell you how it's possible because only Jesus is fully God and fully man. The fullness of deity and the fullness of humanity dwelling in one being, this is Jesus. Because he's fully human, he knows our deepest needs and wounds. He knows what it is to suffer with physical affliction, emotional affliction, pain, sickness. But because he's fully God, he has the power to heal and forgive. Because he's fully human, he has both understanding of sin's curse and compassion for human pain. He suff- what, whatever suffering you have, Jesus understands more than anyone else. Jesus suffered like no one else. He was fully human. But because he is fully God, he has both authority to forgive sins and power to heal human brokenness. This is why Jesus is the whole package. Am I right? Fully God, fully man. And Jesus, he wants to offer hope to the whole you. But you have to actually come to him. And you have to bring people to him. No one else, no Nothing else can meet both your spiritual need and your human need. And so as a church, we just have to posture ourselves. We bring people to Jesus because only Jesus offers what they truly need. And what do we truly need? We need the healing before the healing. You hear me? So, so you invite that couple to church because their marriage is in turmoil. And you say, no, their, their, their marriage needs healing. And it does. Absolutely, it does. And so... We invite them to their city group. They start coming on Sundays. But only Jesus knows the deeper wounds behind their broken marriage. We treat the surface level. We try to give strategies and here's how you communicate better and here's how you better connect and show, you know, show affection. And, but something starts to happen as they start showing up at church and they start sitting in city group and pouring out their wounds and opening up about their struggles you know what starts to happen? They start to experience the healing before the healing. Because what their marriage needs is not just communication, not just better affection. They need forgiveness and grace. It has to be the foundation of their marriage. And in order for their, them to have a marriage built upon forgiveness and grace, they have to be forgiven by grace. You hear me? They need the healing before the healing. And so you want to bring your friends because of his addiction and his suffering and his pain. He needs healing from his addiction. Yes, he does. But only Jesus knows the story behind that addiction. Only Jesus knows it's to numb the pain of never feeling good enough, of never feeling loved, 
of never feeling like he can live up to the expectations he puts on himself and others put on him. But he starts coming to church and he joins a recovery group and he starts reading the gospels. And what he's looking for is freedom from his shackles. But something miraculous happens. He finds freedom for his soul. He finds a savior who was good enough so he doesn't have to be. He finds a son who did live up to every expectation that the father had. He finds a savior who places his robe of righteousness upon his shoulders. He finds the healing before the healing. What each and every one of us need, you know what we need? We need the healing before the healing, do we not? Man, we got these outer pains and surfaces. I need you to hear, Jesus cares about those. He wants to offer hope and healing and redemption and restoration and resurrection to those. It is not that he does not care about those, but there's some work that needs to be done first. And it's some work in your soul. And it's work and it's thirst and it's hunger that can only be quenched by the risen Christ. And so why do we cut holes in the ceiling? Because there is only one who can save There is only one who can heal. There is only one who offers the hope that we actually need. See, Jesus knew the deeper need of this paralyzed man. And only Jesus knows your deepest need and my deepest need and your friend and loved one's deepest need. But not only does he know, he is the only one, fully God, fully man, who can do something about them. Only Jesus can offer that healing before the healing. And so imagine if we were a church that committed our lives to bringing people to Jesus. Our goal is not to get people to church. Our goal as a church is to get people to Jesus. Imagine if we as a church stopped letting the messiness of cutting a few holes in the roof keep us from bringing people to Jesus. We're like, we don't care what it costs. We don't care the mess that it makes. We don't care the time, the energy, the cost, the effort. This is worth it if they could just encounter the risen king. Imagine if we as a church stopped listening to the voice of the critic, whether it comes from the world or the religious, and rather listen to the call of Christ upon our lives to bring people to him. What would our lives look like? Imagine if we as a church truly believed only Jesus was the way, only Jesus was the truth, and only Jesus was the life. Imagine if we lived this out. And that would be rising hope. Jesus, would you impart these words upon our hearts as we embark on this journey? Lord, would we have to just cut giant holes in our building to make space for everybody? Because so many people want an encounter with you. Would we listen to your voice your guidance, your call, and not the criticism we may face, not those outside of our church, not those within, that we would listen to your voice and say we will do anything so that anyone can have an encounter with you. But Lord, in order for us to be healing people, we need to be healed people. And so we need the healing before the healing. Whatever brings us here to your altar, to worship you, to your presence, Lord, you know what's going on at a deeper level. The wounds and the sickness and the pain and the suffering. 
And Lord, we need forgiveness. And need we, we need hope and we need healing. And so, Lord, we're here to say, would you heal us, a wounded healer? Would you lay your, pa- your hands upon our hearts and our souls and offer us hope and healing? We're here to worship you, our risen king today. And all God's people said, amen.